Acrylic Group welcomes you to the amazing Execs Show, where business leaders learn from other leaders. Join us, along with your host, David Rosen, the CEO of Acrylic Group. We discover and dive into stories from executives, founders, and owners and what separates them from success and failure. Hear and see amazing leaders from startups, middle market, and global leading companies. Now, kick back and enjoy watching our videocast or listening to our podcast. The choice of media is all yours. Come take this amazing journey with us and learn how great people do the thing they do. Hello, and welcome to the Amazing Exec Show. I'm your host, David Rosen, and this is episode 104. Our guest today is Tim Cabot. Tim is an entrepreneur, executive, philanthropist, family business board member. In his current role as CEO of Katahdin Industries, he has grown Katahdin from $5 million when he acquired it to $50 million today. He also currently serves as a board member and former chairman of Southworth International Group, a private and successful manufacturing and industrial services company founded by his family. He also balances his time and gives back as a board member of a Boston area nonprofit named Community Resources for Justice. We can all learn a lot from Tim's many roles and successes. Tim and I had an interesting discussion that really resonated with me and some of the challenges I've found in my companies as well as those of my clients. I have a big bias towards being customer knowledgeable and intimate in order to validate and focus on growth and value creation. One assessment we perform periodically is to review our customer groupings or segments. Some customers we find have a great fit with our products and solutions and services that we deliver and can be extremely profitable and valuable. On the other hand, there are also segments of your customers that require more resources than others and may be less profitable or even unprofitable as a customer group. When you're looking for strategic higher growth goals, customer profitability can steer you towards specific or new customer segments and focusing on those. When you take on something new, you need to de-emphasize something else you're currently doing in order to devote the time and energy required to do that new initiative. A natural option is in this situation, as you'll hear from Tim, is to raise your prices over time to those unprofitable or low profitability and low value customer segments. By raising prices over time, you'll have an understanding of how valuable or how much of a need your product or service is to your customers. Tim did this and then realized during the price increases that some customer segments need was much higher than they were paying for their services. Listen in. And what did you do with the other parts of the business that weren't as much of a priority? Let me start by saying that's one of the hardest questions sometimes that we all have to deal with is how do you get rid of customers who don't meet your requirements? Because generally speaking, we all are looking for revenue. Most businesses have relatively fixed overheads 
And it's very hard to give up a customer who's meeting your overhead requirements. And so a lot of people, including ourselves and myself, were, it wasn't as though this was something we, we leapt at because we needed to generate a lot of cash in order to complete the rest of our strategy of upgrading facilities, upgrading the organization, investing in automation, new intellectual property, all of those cost money. So it's a real, it's a very good question, David. And I think the answer is that the simplest way of doing it is to continue to increase prices until your customers walk on those areas that are not strategic. What you learn is what value you have to them. And in some cases, we thought we would demarket a business and we realized that our customers in this one industry segment, in fact, really needed us. We didn't understand how important we were to them or how hard it was going to be for them to change and how essential we were to their end result. And once we got to a better appreciation of where we really were with them, then we looked at it differently. We're like, okay, now we need to invest more in this relationship as well. So either you're fixing it and you're putting in place what you need to be successful or you need to understand it's just a matter of time. And then the question is, when can you move on? But we found that increasing prices was certainly one way of uh, both ensuring that we could meet our margin requirements to do the investment and the, the things that we had to go do. And at the same time, flush smoke out those customers for whom really didn't have a long-term play with. But we started from the sort of the typical buyer supplier relationship thought it had all of the hallmarks of a non-value added business. So it was a bit of a surprise. Okay. This is another example of how customer relationships can be taken for granted. And the real key here is to know your customer. There's a lot more to learn in this episode, and I look forward to your feedback and any advice you have on topics and other CEOs for us to talk with. So let's jump into episode 104 with Tim Cavett. Hello, thank you for being here today, Tim. David, thank you for having me. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about what you're engaged in, what keeps you going here. Thank you. So my two primary activities in the for-profit world are, I'm the president of Katahdin Industries, Inc. It's a platform company that focuses on coding and the application of coatings onto medical devices located here in Massachusetts. And it's a company that I've been involved with for the past 17 years, building it up both organically and also through a number of acquisitions. In addition to my work at Katahdin, I've also been fortunate enough to be involved in a family company called Southworth International Group. Southworth is a large provider of equipment for the material handling industry. It is located both here in the U.S. and it has overseas operations as well. So it's a sort of a global company. In that role, I'm a chairman of the board and I've been involved with it for approximately the same amount of time since about 2008. Do you have other board roles as well currently or in the past? The other current role I have is I'm the, the chair of the finance committee of a a not-for-profit located here in Boston called Community Resources for Justice. It's about a $70 million nonprofit focused on uh, the developmentally disabled, as well as people leaving the prison system and re-establishing connections into the world. Can you talk about your primary role? So you're the chairman of Southworth, and uh, let's start off more with your operating roles if we can. How do you ply your time between them? 
Sure. Katahdin has a couple of different businesses within the group. It's primarily a service business. We work in the medical device supply chain, performing the manufacturing steps that require coding application. And so we have a couple of different technology platforms that we operate, but suffice it that we work with the customer to define the process and the coding and so forth to be applied to their products. We receive their products and then we undertake the coding and send it back to them. That said, we also have within the group, some element of selling actually finished formulated product, as well as licensing intellectual property. And in certain cases, we also provide supply chain solutions where we sell components usually working with the OEM to simplify their supply chain. Instead of having them source all of the substrates that we end up coding, we actually buy those substrates and then coat them and then sell them a more of an intermediate product. So that's the nature of the business. We have a couple of different locations here in New England. We just opened up a few years ago, an operation in Costa Rica. And I suppose spend about 60% of my time working on that company's activities. Although I'm, I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is that time is rather fungible these days, both because a lot of us are able to work more or less continuously, but that's my, that's my, my, certainly my primary activity. And it's, it tends to surge at different times, depending on some of the areas that I get more directly involved in. The challenges in that business are very much like the ones that many of the companies that you'll be familiar with are facing right now, which is to say, we've had COVID, we've had supply chain challenges, we've had shifting demand as customers are trying to figure out what their inventories need to be. And uh, we, to some degree, also have to deal with the, the longer term issues, which is the, the medical uh, device industry is consolidating. But on the other hand, you have new entrants. So there's a lot of focus that needs to be spent on where are you participating? Who are you participating with? How do you keep those relationships fresh and growing? How do you continue to build new platforms with your existing customers and so forth? And some of that includes additional M&A work. And this past September, we acquired a company here in Bedford, Massachusetts, that focuses on hardening of implants using a, so for orthopedic type operations, using a technology called ion impregnation. And um, we continue to look at other things in, in that are in adjacencies or which would be complementary to our business and our business model. About 30% of my time, I would say, is spent on Southworth International. It's much more around the capital structure of a family business can oftentimes be different, where in the case of Katahdin, you have institutional investors, you have who are on pretty well-defined investment cycles that you need to work within. Family company can be a little bit different. Oftentimes you're dealing with longer-term shareholders issues or family ownership dynamics. You're dealing with the issues between advisory and type boards and fiduciary type boards and who you're representing, whether it's the current shareholders, whether it's the expected beneficiaries. Those are a lot of different dynamics that are going on there. But nonetheless, there's also many of the operational issues the same and in that case, the issue is just to try and bring together a group of experienced and, and highly skilled board members to help the company navigate the challenges that it faces and position itself for, for growth and to understand and be able to assess that growth and where were the areas that we can continue to tighten up and improve our execution to allow this company that's, it's a, it's about 100 and 
30 years old, how do you get it to the next generation? How do you continue to attract talent, shareholder interest, and so forth to be able to propagate it for the future? Tim, because you have such a great diversity of roles, I'd like to hear about the journey on how you got here. And what did you do to keep, I know at some point in time, you were also the lead president of a business unit or managing director of a business unit. Tell us about your personal journey of where you've come from, because I, in the previous conversations we've had, I've always had a great respect for your balance as well as a leader, not only as a, an effective business leader, but also the fact that you balance your life a little bit as well, which is important. Well, let me start by saying some people may dispute that point, David, so but be that as it may. So my journey was one of, I, like most people, started work pretty much right out of school. And, but my journey was, I wanted to work overseas and I got involved in the chemical industry. I hadn't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, but it got me down to South America. I'd been interested in the political situation in South America. America when I was studying and I was interested in going back and spending some time. And we had some family history that had been down in South America prior times, but that got me interested in working in a, or that got me involved in chemical manufacturing with the global manufacturer of intermediate chemical materials that are used across a range of industries. And it turned out that they had growth ambitions, but they really didn't have a lot of marketing skill. It was more of a type of an engineering and product type company. And so there was an opening there and I ended up being able to advance my career in the company for a little over 10 years and ended up by the time I left running some global business units that were focused on some of the very specialty applications for the products that we manufactured and looking at what those market requirements were where were there opportunities for growth and for margin expansion and so forth? And, as, and then how that needed to translate into what products and sales execution strategies we needed to have to be able to continue to build those out. I'm, I'm proud that the work that we did all those years ago continues to pay out very good results for the company. These are some of the highest margin, most lucrative reoccurring sources of revenue within the business. And it set me up to think a little bit about how do you think about taking uh, somewhat commodity type technologies and products and focus those into markets that are have good fundamentals. And then over a period of time, how do you start to differentiate yourself through either product or service or some other attribute? that allows you to start to command sort of a premium for your participation. And at the same time, how do you secure your business so that you're not just at risk of whatever the next P is for, for what you do. And so back in 2006, when I, I identified it, it was a company, Katahdin, that had seen better days to say the least, but where I saw some opportunities through a, if one rolled up on sleeves and got involved to grow it. And my partner, Bob DeAngelis and I bought the company. It was, there was, there, we went through all of the stages of turnaround to growth and it's been a fun. What size was Katahdin when you found it and where is it today in anything you can share? Sure. Yeah, it was in the eight to $9 million range when we bought it. And now we're getting closer to 50. And so it's, it's been a very positive growth arena, but I think what we, what it also part of that is that we 
certainly demarketed a lot of business in order to focus on those areas that are are we felt that it had the most long-term strategic value because one of the revenues something everyone looks at and about how we all understand that but what typically drives valuation is your your margins and your especially your profitability and that's the area i think we've been able to do a lot it's a little bit below the surface we've for some of our businesses we've been able to double the gross margin and there's been a big especially as you start to scale the profitability of the group has certainly improved over the years but quite considerable can you talk about some of the tools and some of the things that you did to increase the profitability and increase the margins of a business that sounds like it was a little stagnant at the time and it was really stuck at a low state at an early stage yeah so in so the business has a couple of different platforms we i mean there's some technology platforms and so each one of them had a slightly different path, path to get it to perform we we deposit fluoropolymer coatings onto guide wire and core wires and other types of medical devices single use medical devices that are used in in minimally invasive type surgical procedures and that was a small part of a business when we bought it, it was less than 40% and so in that business there were the two primary growth strategies or strategies that we executed on our one is to focus on the medical interventional devices as our core business and demarketed a lot of other things along the way built up facilities that were specialized medical grade facilities and we invested heavily in automation to try and improve both our cost structure but also be able to give our customers the confidence that the product were going to be made consistently over time whether it was seasonal consistency employee consistency it didn't really matter we need to make the most consistent products the third piece of that was also to follow the customers to where they operated these products are quite you can fit a lot into a tube and you can ship that tube by overnight we felt that we needed to open up facilities closer to where our customers were growing so that's what caused us to open a facility in Costa Rica and then the third piece or the fourth piece is we staffed the company with people who came out of the medical device industry who really understood all of our customer requirements and could talk with our customers at the level our customers needed in order for them to see that we were not like the other people in the industry so that meant that we basically had to turn over the whole management team over a period of time at the same time maintain that core competency of being able to provide the services that we were known for so there was a little bit of a challenge there the other big part of the business is on the anodizing of aluminum side of the world as I'm sure everyone who's on this call knows anodizing aluminum is a pretty traditional bog standard type process and the key there was coming up with new technology and specifically we worked on and have now issued many patents around how do you anodize an article that can withstand the cleaning and sterilization requirements that are going to need it for that product then to be used in a, in the following and to use again and again and so we came up with this technology through a lot of hard work and some very smart and talented people and now that is the standard in the industry for if you have a a drill or a saw or you know, typically it's orthopedic it can also be endoscopic 
But these are all the sort of the aluminum equipment that is used and then has to be prepared for the next operation through pretty vigorous cleaning and sterilization. And because of that, now we have this very, where we work on the most premium products in the industry, and that's a great intellectual property, intellectual property portfolio as well. So a little bit different depending obviously on the business, but those were the, some of the most basic strategies at a high level. It's really informative because a lot of people don't recognize that sometimes the minor portions of the business may have greater growth opportunities and therefore could be you may need to switch your thinking and prioritization to focus on one of the businesses and what did you do with the other parts of the business that weren't as much of a priority let me start by saying that's one of the hardest questions sometimes that we all have to deal with is how do you get rid of customers who don't meet your requirements. Generally speaking, we all are looking for revenue because most businesses have relatively fixed overheads and it's very hard to give up a customer who's meeting your overhead requirements. And so a lot of people, including ourselves and myself, were, it wasn't as though this was something we, we leapt at because we needed to generate a lot of cash in order to complete the rest of our strategy of upgrading facilities, upgrading the organization, investing in automation, new intellectual property, all of those cost money. So it's a real good question, David. And I think the answer is that the simplest way of doing it is to continue to increase prices until your customers walk on those areas that are not strategic. And because what you learn is what value you have to them. In some cases, we thought we would demarket a business and we realized that our customers in this one industry segment, in fact, really needed us. We didn't understand how important we were to them or how hard it was gonna be for them to change and how essential we were to their end result. And once we got to a better appreciation of where we really were with them, then we looked at it differently. We're like, okay, now we need to invest more in this relationship as well. But we started from the sort of the typical buyer supplier relationship. And we thought this, was was it had all of the hallmark hallmarks of a non-value added business so it was a bit of a surprise but some customers including many of the customers who were the large volume regular consistent demand good quality companies but just we didn't have a good fit and they were really needed x and we were providing y one of the things that i think is easier to see in retrospect especially when you get through that anxiety of giving up customers is that when the relationship isn't tenable it's only a matter of time before it breaks right. and and work you so either you're fixing it and you're really putting in place what you need to be successful or you need to understand it's just a matter of time. And then the question is, when can you move on? But we found that increasing prices was certainly one way of uh, both ensuring that we could meet our margin requirements to do the investment and the, the things that we had to go do. And at the same time, flush smoke out those customers for whom really didn't have a long-term play with. Right. That's really important. One talks about innovation and startups and their stage of going from growth to scaling and what happens in that environment. And they always show that S curve. Very rarely do we ever talk about how to land the plane. And I think that's an important area to focus on because you've made a great case of 
you don't have to shut the business down. You can keep pushing the boundaries of the price sensitivity of your customers more importantly, the value sensitivity of your customers and understand how to get that up into the returns that you're expecting from your new businesses or your more higher growth businesses. What a great finding, Tim. I think that's a great lesson to learn and understand how to react in those situations. Is that business still with you in the business at Katahdin? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's one of those areas where we've actually had this on two or three occasions. I wouldn't even say it was one where we demarketed it through price increases only to find that there was a that areas that were worth and in further investment. It just we thought that it was what we did would could be replaced by someone else. And it turned out it couldn't be. And there was good. There was a better fit with the customer that we previously understood. So it's you know the, the it's definitely ongoing and in some ways we're doing it much in many ways we're doing it much better we're providing a better service to them we have a better relationship with them or we're working on what their future requirements are in a more proactive way so I think everyone gets would say that it's been an improvement and the companies that we let go it turns out they have other solutions and that's fine that's okay they can make it work and and instead of us trying to do two quite distinct, have different types of business models within the group or different service levels within the group or different expectations of what, you, what you're doing within, within our company, it's now much more focused. And certainly one lesson that I have is that it's possible, I'm sure you feel this way, all of us can deal with a, a reasonable amount of confusion and chaos within our own heads, hmm. but it's really important to deal with the organization clearly. And when you ask, when you tell people you can do X and Y and Z, it's like people get confused easily about what the message really is. And so one of the things about really being articulate about your business and what value you add and where you want to be and, and things of that nature is that it gets everyone to get the business better and then be able to serve the business or be able to build that business better. But when you're trying to do multiple things in different ways, a lot of people default to, I'm just going to continue to do what I've been always doing, or I'm going to, I don't know. And so I'm going to, I'll, I'll make it up as I go along. And those aren't typically very good answers. It's very interesting when we work with companies, we always find, or even in my own companies, I've always been cognizant of looking at product profitability and product line profitability and dealing with it on a portfolio basis, but more importantly, looking at customer profitability. Yeah. Because in one of my software companies, I realized that for a 400 seat situation, I had a less than a quarter time of a person spent in customer support of that large account. And yet the mainstay of our business was two seats to 20 seats. And those customers, because they didn't have, they weren't large, they didn't have extra resources to help them in their programs around us that they ended up relying on my customer support people. So I would have quarter time, half time people working with one account at a time or two or three accounts at a time. And I realized that I have to really carefully understand product profitability, but enough about me. I wanna go back. This is really interesting. What was your timing, Tim, of when you thought about these issues? Was it before you acquired them? Was it after you acquired them? And how far into it did you get when you started realizing that you need to look at growing the margins that you need to? Was that ahead of time 
or did you find these things along the way and have to pivot your thinking and strategy and alignment? So I think it's, I'd like to paint a picture that everything was according to a very clear roadmap and everything was predetermined and so forth. And unfortunately, I couldn't do that with the straight face, David, but, but I'll tell you what my, my takeaway after this time is, which is you can focus and prioritize one or two problems and you can manage a whole bunch of other stuff, but you can't, you've only got a chance to focus, to really focus and change on one or two areas of a business at any given time. And the narrower that number, the better, the more chances are you're going to be successful. It's not to say the world stops and you have, you can't have to manage everything else. But, and so the answer to your question was, is selecting the right customers was not our most important initial decision. We had environmental issues. We had process issues. We had facility issues. We had organizational issues. I haven't said that already. We had a lot of stuff we had to get sorted out. And so the first couple of years of buying this company were just basically illegal issues. We had stuff that we had to get done because it was, if we didn't get it done, it was just going to be a drag on the company going forward. But then as we got those things done, as we were able to get to a, get the business repositioned on some of those fundamental areas, then the question of on the marketing customer advancing that, that became more important to us. And I would say most of that work was done in the second five-year hold period. The first five was really about just turnaround, fixing, just addressing all of the problems that we uncovered after we acquired it. Second five years was positioning for growth and the third period, last five years has been around actually executing that growth and leveraging the business model. So that's and really I'm sure, important. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that the, there'll be people who will listen to this, who could have probably done that in a much shorter period of time than I did, but, but that was the, that's just, the, that was our journey. But you've done it and that's the most important part. And it, it's hindsight's always 2020, but it's a matter of prioritizing the things that you do change for some reason, change is always the most difficult thing. And what I've always found is that the people issues far o overhang any of the smart business process and logic. Can you talk a little bit about the people? So I look at people, I look at customer intimacy and market intimacy as a second item, a foundation of a business. I look at under having business savvy and prof understanding profit and cash flow and things like that. And then the fourth one is understanding your product and service viability and availability and doability. Mm. And do those four foundations resonate with you or is there other things that you would add to that list as you're going through these transformations or changes? Those are clearly in the, those are the major ones. There may be, I guess I'd have to think about that a little bit more. I don't have a, an immediate response okay. for you on that, but regarding the people that's certainly been an area where, you know, we focus and we're, we, as leaders, a lot of our energy goes into people issues in general. And the one thing I've learned is no one is indispensable. You might think that they're indispensable, but I really have yet to come up to a situation where I can say, I hate to lose some people when it happens. I, I've had times when I regret that things have, maybe there was a wrong turn. I don't know. But in general, the organizations are pretty resilient. If you focus on culture, if you focus on 
the things which, if you're investing in the organization in the right way, you become less reliant on any one individual and you get more out of the group and the team. And that can be very powerful. And so then the second point is just on that sort of the culture and on the group is that think that most of how to get it right and how to fix problems when the organization isn't functioning right is some is an area where you know working together with other smart people other business leaders to help understand what the issue is help make sure you haven't misunderstood the issue or that you haven't committed yourself to a course that other people might be like why exactly are you doing this that's really important because we tend to form attachments with in relationships that then become difficult to re-examine and really understand. And one of the benefits of whether you have an advisory group or you're in a CEO council or whatever is to allow you to explain to someone else what is actually occurring. And it always in, involves people to try and understand what actually the problem is and oftentimes it's very simple that someone doesn't want to go do something. They were not, or they're not able to do something. And, and you can bang your head about it for a long time, or you can understand the issue and try and resolve it in a way which is respectful, which is fair, which is, but you need to resolve the situation. You need to get it, you need to get it worked out. And when I look back, my, my most significant accomplishments and my biggest failures were around the organizational side of things because they were the, that was the, what either caused a good outcome or something that actually allowed a bad outcome to continue for longer than it needed to. And as the leader, that's what we're responsible for. We're responsible to make sure that we accelerate on those positive areas and we keep the things that are not going right as we try and resolve those as quickly as possible. How would you react to a CEO who declines to drive a culture in a business? Is a real People have been successful where... <laughs> with poor cultures, right? I, who am I to say if it works for them? But my general feeling is that there's an opportunity cost. Because even if your business is doing wonderfully well and you have a terrible culture, most people that weren't directly involved, you and me, would look at it and say, imagine what if this guy or this woman really got this, if they really had a powerful culture, and they got an organization that was like, and this business model or the, whatever they do that made them successful, just think where they could be. So you've mentioned people savvy and how much did your business change for the Katahdin when you first got into it in terms of nimbleness and agility, would you say you added to that organization as well in their culture? Yeah, some of it is, it a, it's a good question. My experience is that sometimes you have to do less to do more, right? which is to say you really got to focus customers, focus products, focus your value proposition into an area that is really clear and that you're executing well on. And then when you get into that position, then you can start to do stuff which is really nimble and creative and fast thinking and so forth, which is to say, to take a bad analogy or now I don't know if it's a bad analogy teams that don't know like a sport team that's trying to do too many things and doesn't understand the plays can never make that in the moment 
pass whatever needs to occur in order to score. They just, they can't do it. They flub on the simple stuff. They cannot execute on the, so the more you can understand what you're doing, have a strategy, execute the strategy and keep that focus. The more sometimes you're able to be responsive, to be able to be creative, be able to be innovative, but you have to define the box. You have to know what you're doing. And transparency and communications have a strong involvement in that success, right? Yeah. yeah. It's so what other, so what are the attributes of a successful leader that you believe are important and how do you apply that to your roles? I think they're different. If you're talking about the president or a very senior leader of the a company I would say that apart from all the other things that most people are going to think about the experience in the industry, their communication ability their analytical strength. I think things that matter a lot are courage matters a lot because oftentimes you have to deal with what needs to get done and you should do that wholeheartedly and with without fear if you can. I think that the ability to step, tell good stories really matters because it's a people organization. People need, they only understand things through stories. They, if you think they're going to accept just a spreadsheet and be able to be motivated by a spreadsheet, it, it usually doesn't work that way. And good story and healthy. And, and the other bit is to just park the ego. I find that people who put themselves in front of their organization oftentimes fail to develop the talent and skills within their organization because they just can't see it. And so that idea that you're the servant leader or something along the lines of you're there to create a powerful and purposeful organization to whatever you're doing, and that needs to be manifest in all of the people within the company, that goes a long way. And by the way, I'm this, these are qualities, which I'm, I make no, I'm not saying I have these, but it's just, those are the three or four things that really stand out for me that make a difference. And I think when I look at other people and I see someone who does it, I'm very respectful of what they're able to do. I love kind of the points you're bringing up because they resonate with me. So Tim, in your career, who have been the people that have had the greatest impact on you and in your leadership roles, either people that you've learned from through their books or learned from? I think that um, there's been a handful of people who I really, I closely identified with or who I thought were great role models of people to try and emulate. They seem to have the right balance of being smart, but also being emotionally intelligent, being broad viewed about the world and possibilities, but then very focused on when something needed to get done, getting it done. And I think, but generally speaking, you can actually learn from almost anybody for better or for worse. And so I could also probably cite another handful of people who I was very much like, I don't ever want to go do that or that didn't seem to work out very well, but the, uh, but I definitely of the view that you should always try and surround yourself with people you're learning something from if you can, which is to say almost, it's almost never the case that you know everything or there's not a benefit of an independent or a different assessment that we all, especially as we get older, suffer from confirmation bias in various forms. And that sometimes the most interesting people you'll to be with are the ones that are able to ask the provocative questions that are able to provide some information maybe you weren't aware of in order to make sure your understanding of this, you have a chance to grow and, and, and maybe enhance your understanding. And that's where boards are so important is that this is a relatively low dollar way 
of being able to get the get that real diversity of experience of business smarts of people with accomplished lives and not have a hierarchical relationship where people are just telling you what you want to hear, but you're getting the benefit of what people actually know and see. And um, that's a, but nonetheless, to, to your general question, I've been very fortunate to have known a, a couple of really exemplary business leaders. Sam Bodman, who was a Cava Corporation for a number of years and was a very accomplished person. And he built out a significant change effort through a series of steps, which certainly influenced how I've thought about business ever since, to name one. I have a favorite moniker that is focused around better you, better team, better organization and business. You look at organizational alignment at those three levels. We all need to be lifelong learners in any role, and we need to be humble and realize what we don't know and what we do know and also where we should be spending our time. I have hobbies that I spend time on, but I would never do those hobbies in my business because if it's a $100 an hour job, it's not always going to be helpful to my business as opposed to working on issues that are much higher magnitude. So you're a balanced individual and leader, but then you've got teams that then lead the whole organization. Do you look at team effectiveness and team maturity and team nimbleness or agility and creativity? How do you look at teams in terms of their role and value to the business? So I think teams are, for any relatively complex business, teams are important. In fact, sometimes that's the essential ingredient as to what determines success. And my feeling is evolved over time in that, whereas I think that it's been consistent, the focus on teams over most of my career and working in various places, there were tools to try and get the team work. I think the two areas that are increasingly obvious, but maybe weren't less spoken about in the past is one is around how to really create a strong culture. And I think the second one is understanding individual behavior and how people make choices. And those are, I would say, in the past, certain leaders knew how to improve culture and they knew how to understand team dynamics by understanding individual choice sets and behavior, but they were just exceptionally good leaders. I think most of us now get the benefit of other people's insights and whether you do predictive index or you do a disk assessment and you understand how to use those tools, to understand the way people think and then understand culture more comprehensively about culture is not just something that sort of exists because it was always, or because we do a lot of good things, but don't really understand how they impact culture to understand that culture is the product of a deliberate and ongoing effort that has certain very clear deliverables that need to be met and communication that has to be done and expectations that need to be very clearly communicated. And when right, they're, right. And, and so that's the area where I think it's just, it's taking it to the next level is just on both the organization and the team work and culture are areas which I think we've have always been on our radar. The question is really, what are you doing about it? How, do you, how are you making it work? And what are you not doing about it? And why aren't you doing those things that probably are gonna make a difference? My second to last question is about board and board governance. So we're switching topics here from leadership to board roles. 
and the value of a board to a business. What are your learnings, both positive and negative, about boards? So all the things that one could point at, and I'm sure many of these things are relevant, the, what I'm going to say is not totally intuitive. But what I've learned about boards is that you need to have very clear ownership expectations for the organization and the business that without that before you can even talk about a high functioning board you need to start with a clear understanding of what the owners of the company whether it's individuals or at the market or whatever but you need to get alignment about what that group wants really wants not what they say they want but what they're willing to fight for and and then once that's in place the reason why i say that's important then you can build a board that can actually execute governance and fiduciary and be able to provide very good advice assuming you get the right people and assuming that you you do all the things that you need to do and you should do and boards like any team can be confused about what really their role, what their roles are. And some people can, because they're involved in a lot of boards, can cut to the chase and they can either fix it or they're going to leave. There are going to other people that are just going to keep a seat warm, just hoping that circumstances will change and eventually they'll get to a position where they can have the impact that they want to have. But that the role of the chair is to make sure that there's a very clear definition of what the owner's or whoever controls the organization, what's going on there. And if it needs to change because there is no clarity, then they have to work on that issue. And if it's now just an issue of getting people to sit down and do the hard work of thinking about what they want to be in, when they grow up or in five years, then you need to get that done. And then with that, you can get a board that can perform at a very high level. So aligning expectations from each of the owner representatives or owner groups that you've got very, really smart. What do you do when, have you found any situations when those interests or expectations are counter strategic to your business? Yeah, they, there can be. And oftentimes there are, right? As people, the question is how much do you invest is a good, is a, is usually a question. <laughs> if you're working with people that have a five-year horizon, it's hard to make a 10-year investment. So part of that then is just to try and break up a 10-year investment into a series of smaller investments. They each have milestones that you can show the business is improving and meeting those shareholders' expectations while you're preparing for the future and the larger changes that you're trying to put in place. But it shows up in a lot of different areas and that's an easy one, but there are, there's ones that are more complicated. But my feeling is that, that sometimes those challenges are less real and substance as they first appeared in in practice, which is to say, or in, in, in actuality, which is in my experience, even working sort of as private equity can be very short-sighted and so forth. And my experience is not really, there can be, a, we've had, we've worked with a couple of different groups over the years, but everybody wants to have a successful company. All investors want to own a successful company. A successful company ultimately determines how attractive your business will be when you go to value it. And they all want successful companies. And so sometimes the questions that they're asking are questions that are actually good questions. 
they may be coming across as why are you investing in this area and there's a real issue there and we believe that's the right area to go invest in but they haven't but they're not seeing it for whatever reason and sometimes you need to stop and you need to figure out what is it exactly that they're seeing that you're not seeing and once you do that i've usually found that those types of situations start to resolve themselves because then you can start to agree on where you have a common view and work towards that goal sometimes you both have to give up a little bit of what you are thinking or you modify it a little bit but but i found that generally speaking most of our investors over the years have because they're less vested in the business on a day-to-day basis are sometimes able to see stuff that we just can't see because we're so into it that we're not looking at the larger picture or really understanding the what choices we have one thing you, you talked about which is important is the understanding the timing of where you're being invested in by the firm and the life the life cycle of their fund you're in so my question is if you get invested in year five with the firm that expects that's a 10-year life on their fund that usually by the seventh year they start deciding what they're doing with all the portfolio companies and how they start cashing out with them or start how they start understanding them do you find that it sometimes could be also an issue of where you are in their portfolio of businesses in terms of are you in the top 10 or are you in the bottom third and therefore they might treat you differently so if you're in the top 10 they're always going to give you an exception and say don't worry about the 10-year life we'll put you into our next fund <laughs> like all funds they have a diversification of results or they have a distribution of results over their many investments and it's usually the 80 20 rule and you obviously want to be in the 20 percent of companies that are earning 80 percent of their returns because then they're the most motivated right they that means something's going really well and i would just say if you're going to be working with institutional money that that's what their job is their job is to drive their portfolio return and and your interests can be aligned you can be doing is if you're making a driving a successful business and growing it they're likely to get the returns they're looking for and you're likely to be working in a dynamic increasing opportunity type business which is going to be fun and you just need to know that every five years you're going to go through a some type of li liquidity and recapitalization of the company and that every step along the way there will be a new buyer group who will be great to help you get to your next goal right. in the further five years that the people that investors when you were a small company are not going to be the investors you're going to be dealing with anymore you're going to be dealing with the next size up and they're gonna they're gonna if you choose the right group you're not only going to get a good valuation but you're also going to get a company which is able to help you get to that next level that you aspire to get to i would say that as it relates to the the investment side of things the one area that stands out right now is around our conversations which are around risk and sometimes that's it's a leverage question and different people feel differently about risk i have this family business where we have no debt i have a private company where we have more debt and the choices you make are different when you have 
leverage and covenants you have to make. And that sets a dynamic in place, which once you're on that train, you don't get off that train. You actually are always on that. You don't, you're always on it. And it just requires you to do certain things where if you're in a company with no debt, you probably are not pushing yourself as hard, but you're also your scope of choices are, it's almost infinite because you don't have those constraints and you can work very opportunistically to, if a situation arises, you have enormous capacity to go do things. Whereas if you're typically in a private, if you're institutional money, if you want to go do a big acquisition, you have to bring in the financing to get that done. And that's right. hard, hard to do. But you have more flexibility when you have no debt. <laughs> yep. You have more flexibility and you can look at situations and not be as worried when, you know, when something happens, because you're basically, you're protected from a, it's harder to lose control if you have no debt. When you have when you have debt, you have another master that you're. Tim, I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have a favorite business book that you're reading right now that's interesting? Oh golly, I have to think about that. I don't have one that comes immediately to mind right now. Okay. I'm I'm interested right now as a, just a general as a general proposition is like a lot of other people, many people who are going to be listening to this, and I'm sure the same is true with you, David. Is I'm trying to make sure that I continue to understand those forces that are going to have, they're likely to have the most impact over the next 10 or 15 years. And whether that's technology or it's behavioral science, or whether it's some of the things that are going on in the world. I think a lot of us are thinking, what's our China strategy, right? I don't, those are hard questions. I don't know. All I know is I probably don't know enough to be able to give a good answer. So I need to, on all of these subjects, I need to figure out how to stay current with what's going on and at least in how they're likely to impact our business and how we can use them to our advantage. I wrap that all around inflection points that can be both internally driven and externally driven, whether it's when you go from 50 to 100 million, what are the challenges you're going to face operationally and decision-making and in risk management and risk tolerance that you need to evolve to? That, that a lot of what we're helping people face is those those inflection points and how you prepare for them and either swerve around the iceberg <laughs> or figure out how to have a big enough method to break up the iceberg so you can go through it. Um, and so that that's really great advice and a great way to wrap up. So Tim, how can listeners get in touch with you? And again, I appreciate your time. This is about leaders helping other leaders and I can tell that you have some other groups that you get involved with to, to learn from. For the people who are listening in a podcast, how would they reach you? The easiest way is to just my email address, which is uh, tpcabot at katahdin-inc.com. So like Mount Katahdin. Thank you, well, David. Tim, it's been a pleasure thank to you talk. For wonderful talking with you and uh, be well in COVID and be well in business. <laughs> thank you. Same to you. Take care. Bye.